You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Fewer students in college classrooms may help keep them safe from the coronavirus, but are they any safer from sexual assaults? Sexual violence was the topic of discussion this week at the University of Hawaii. Two bills that would have required UH to expand training for the employees in the Title IX office and access to confidential services for students failed this session. UH testified it didn't think they were necessary. Anna Chua is a current UH senior and student organizer. Nora Gallo is the co-executive director of the Every Voice Coalition. The group works on campuses across the country to help students pass legislation that protects survivors of sexual violence. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with them yesterday about how they came to this work. Here's Anna. I grew up in Malaysia where victim blaming, sexual assault, sex trafficking are very prevalent issues and there are no institutional bodies that protect women and survivors and children. And so when I came to UH and started organizing around just general social justice issues, I realized that I have power in my voice. And so when we were tracking some bills, uh, we came across one that was um, connected to Title IX issues on campus and just generally sexual violence and gender-based violence. And so when I had reached out to Representative Capella, who um, was a big advocate for this for these bills, um, I was then connected to Nora, who's part of Every Voice Coalition. And that just kind of started this whole rabbit hole of organizing around this issue and understanding um, not just how we can combat it, but what really are the roots of rape culture and what kinds of institutional barriers perpetuate it, what prevents survivors from speaking out, from reporting, from really attaining justice in a system that really, unfortunately, does not care about us. That dovetails nicely into Nora and her introduction. I became involved with survivor advocacy, specifically through the Every Voice Coalition, as an undergrad at UMass Amherst in Massachusetts. A personal experience with sexual violence was a catalyst for me to get involved in survivor advocacy work. And as I became more involved, I found it as a place where direct action was an avenue for healing. I realized more and more that survivorship and um, sexual violence does not happen in a silo and that it happens in many other states across the country on many other campuses. Not a lot of widespread action has been taken to address it. And what I'm talking about with widespread action is above policy change and into legislative reform. And so that's what got me involved. Um, And I'm really, really grateful to be able to support students and survivors across states, across the country in advocating for change on their campuses and in their states for survivors' rights, um, transparency, and support. I want to give some numbers to our listeners. For those who might not already be aware, there was a climate survey around sexual assault that took place in 2019. It was the second survey. The first came out in 2017, asking a number of questions about students' personal experience with sexual harassment, sexual assault, dating and domestic violence, and stalking. And 21% of people who filled out that survey stated that they had been victims of dating or domestic violence while enrolled in the UH system. 7.2% reported non-consensual sexual contact, and 12.7% reported being sexually harassed. Nora, since you work with many different campuses and students organizing on campuses. How do these survey results compare to what else you're seeing across college campuses? Like I said, uh, campus sexual violence does not happen in a silo, and we see these numbers reflected across the country. Nationally, an estimated 1 in 10 students will experience sexual violence by the time that they leave or graduate college. And also, more than 90%, it's estimated that more than 90% do not report through official avenues such as Title IX or law enforcement because of the roadblocks that is faced in achieving justice for those systems. And these numbers are shocking. To put that 21.3% who experience dating or domestic violence into sort of numbers, Um, Simply on um, the UH campuses, that's around 50,000 students total, therefore 10,645 students at UH in 2019 experienced domestic or dating violence. And again, I will say 
we see that number on average reflected across the country on different campuses. And it's an issue that is widespread, impacts many, many students. And across the country, I will say in 2020, 2 million students experienced campus sexual violence. Widespread change does need to happen and it needs to happen now. I do want to note that 6,300 students responded to this survey. And so even if you're just looking at that 21.3% of students who responded saying that they were victims of dating or domestic violence, that's still over 1,000 students, roughly 1,300 students who have this experience. Anna, as someone who is a member of the UH system, what do these numbers mean to you? Definitely scary. And what's scarier is knowing that it doesn't even reflect the actual number of people who are affected. And it's definitely really disappointing and frustrating that on uh, administrative levels, institutional levels, there aren't any real means of supporting survivors and students. And so when we have Title IX, people in the Title IX office, Um, not getting student consent or having that relationship with students and survivors on campus to talk about like, hey, what do you need? How How can we support you? I think it becomes really difficult as students to take a stand and say like, this isn't enough or this is wrong. It feels like a weird dissonance, I guess, knowing that, hey, there are all these numbers. And while there is an entire office dedicated to supposedly protecting students, there is a reason why these numbers are increasing. It has been really heavy to hear experiences of students um, having to basically be be re-traumatized by their experiences when working with administration. And this is not in any way uh, meant as a provocation to people who work on this issue on campus, but I think there isn't a solid trauma-informed framework um, and culturally sensitive framework that seeks to provide justice for survivors. Starting even with the issue of reporting, many, many students feel scared of reporting. And again, speaking from personal experience, while I have not survived an experience like that at UH, I did when I was a teenager, and it was extremely scary to even think about talking about it, much less actually talk about it. I think at the, at the end of the day, students who do seek justice oftentimes come out feeling even more defeated or silenced. And I will add specifically when it comes to having that data and being able to know the true rates of violence on campuses, what we do need to do from that is take these actionable steps, be able to translate this data into actionable data to be able to use those numbers to understand what needs to happen next. Um, especially throughout something like a pandemic where um, the impact was very drastic for many, including within gender-based violence and sexual violence. And so I would say from there, steps need to be taken to be able to translate these numbers now into direct action and change. My sort of note is in order to break cycles of violence and provide survivors with the support and resources they need, we can come together as students, survivors, community organizations, universities, legislators to combat sexual violence by passing student and survivor written and centered legislation. Our laws and institutions must reflect the lived experiences of students on our campuses. The students that you are hearing from, Anna, you're hearing from today, um, is an expert in knowing the terrain on campus and what needs to change. If you would like to get involved with the Every Voice Coalition's efforts, with student-led efforts in Hawaii, you can contact us um, through everyvoicecoalition.org. And we want to be able to empower the next generation of, of student leaders being able to create that tangible, real change and uplift their voices in this process and work together with all stakeholders involved to kind of get this change across the finish line. Anna, anything specifically you want to say about your campus work, other ways you would like people to get involved, events they can attend, or anything about the administrative response that you've seen so far from UH? I guess I can speak a little bit to um, just on-campus organizing a little bit first. So I think it's super important to get plugged in or organize with the 
spaces that already exist on campus. All of the collaborators for our event yesterday, um, AUW, Women's Center, LGBTQ Plus Center, How Violence, um, the list goes on. These are all vital to supporting students and survivors on campus. And I think what yesterday taught me is that showing up for one another and being able to have a brave space, really, just for us to speak on our experiences, but also how we can combat the root of these issues, of these intersecting issues, is really important. So I would say organize, organize, organize. And then in terms of how we can work against institutional barriers, one thing that really has spoken to me these past few months is that no matter how intimidating it is to work against policy and try and really fighting for a seat at the table, um, it's that no one is going to listen to us unless we create that seat at the table. And I think this is what we touched upon last night as well, is that um, at the end of the day, we can harp on their backs, you know, for forever, really, talking about how we need to be heard and what are our demands. But I personally feel like it wouldn't really happen until we do that on our own and we find our own ways to create spaces that really champion BIPOC folks, LGBTQ plus folks and survivors and really say, it doesn't matter whether or not you listen to us, we're going to ensure that our voice has to be at the table. That was University of Hawaii senior Anna Chua and Nora Gallo of the Every Voice Coalition. They hosted a panel this week uh, to talk about ending sexual violence on campus. Anna says that a new campus climate survey on sexual harassment and gender violence just went out to students this year. You can find links to the previous 2019 survey on our website, along with campus resources and upcoming events for survivors of sexual assault. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. We live in an on-demand world, and HPR is here for you wherever and whenever you want to listen. Get the best of our local talk shows in podcast form. You can have The Conversation, Bite Marks Cafe, The Body Show, and more delivered right to your phone or device as soon as they're released. Plus, subscribe to features like Manu Minute and Off the Road with Dave Lawrence. For the full list, just head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Human Resource Management, scheidler.hawaii.edu. There's exactly a week in the legislative session left. Honolulu Civil Beats government reporter Kevin Dayton joins us for today's reality check. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, good morning, Catherine. So your story has a whole laundry list of stuff that happened uh, like overnight, but you've got some fresh news. What are the bills that have uh, died or advanced so far this morning? Yeah, it is a busy time down here at the state legislature. Um, I think as you explained that we're heading into the home stretch with the legislature making firm decisions on tax bills, the budget, and pretty much everything else this week. The final bills are scheduled for final votes next week, um, and the session is scheduled to wrap up a week from Thursday. That'd be a week from yesterday. Okay, I'm getting confused. But anyway, it's been a very busy morning at the Capitol today with uh, House and Senate negotiators reaching tentative agreement on several bills and allowing a couple of others to die. Um, I guess maybe the best-known one today was something called House Bill 1324, that was supposed to set up a system of grants that would essentially bail out or subsidize um, commercial property landowners. Um, they've suffered a lot in the pandemic, like everybody else, and I think the legislature had the idea that they needed some relief. Um, that bill died this morning, so that's not going to happen. Um, something the legislature did agree to today, at least tentatively, it would increase the state's uh, rental car tax surcharge 
from five bucks a day to eight dollars a day and of course that's a a charge that's mostly paid by tourists you know locals once in a while but usually tourists and that tax is a big earner that earns about you know the new tax is going to earn something upwards of a hundred million dollars a year and the idea is that that would be used to match federal funds to help with uh, roadway and highway construction in hawaii which i think everybody agrees we kind of need um basically there's there's um there's another one that the one that passed last night uh, at least tentatively, would authorize the counties to impose a, uh, a tax of up to 3% on hotel rooms. And you're probably picking up on the fact that the, the, one, a common theme here is that we'd like to tax tourists right now. That seems to be a pretty popular idea down at the legislature. Um, and we'll see if these all make it through on the final votes. Right. And they still have to go up to the governor's office for review and and, uh, and his signature. Um but uh, yeah, I mean the the uh, HTA has uh, come under fire. Uh, folks are looking to kind of dismantle the structure, or, or at least certainly cut their budget. And that is going to happen. Um, a P one piece of one of the bills that was approved last night. Um, the idea of that would be that they would take uh, currently the HTA draws about seventy nine million a year, not this year, but in an ordinary year, uh, from the hotel room tax revenue. And the idea that the House and the Senate have agreed to last night was that that would be cut to about $60 million a year, and they want to use federal funds. It's not clear where HTA would get its funding after that. We haven't seen the details of the bill because a lot of the documents haven't been made public yet. But, And another thing that would happen as part of that same bill is they would reduce the funding for the Convention Center Authority uh, from $16 million a year to $11 million a year. So there's definitely interest in paring back on the cost of sort of the what's what's thought of as the infrastructure that supports the tourism industry and there'd been some talk about taxing the wealthier residents what what looks like it's getting out here there has been there was a lot of debate earlier in the session about um imposing a, a stiff increase in income taxes state income taxes that died fairly early in the session um, one thing that did make it was there is an increase in the conveyance tax that was agreed to yesterday and the idea with that one is that that would apply only to non-owner-occupied homes, so residential properties that are worth that sell for four million dollars or more. So you know, so long as your house isn't more than four million, this wouldn't apply to you. But the idea is that for those uh, high-end housing units that do sell in that price range, they would double, triple, or quadruple the conveyance tax. Um, on those properties and on those sales. And I think the perception is that a lot of that property tends to be um, out-of-state millionaires, billionaires, what have you. And I know there was some discussion about oh, unfunded liabilities. Where do we end up on that? Um, some of the change, there's been an effort to fund some of the unfunded liabilities that were people, so, people were so worried about at the beginning of the session. Now, Governor Ige had proposed that the state defer making payments into the health fund for five years. The state, uh, by law, is obligated to make uh, really large, substantial payments into the health fund each year to try to build up a balance so that we'll have money available to pay for public worker and retiree health benefits in the years to come, because they know that that bill is going to come due. Um, each year, the state kicks in something on the order of 350 to $400 million, and EK wanted to defer those payments because of the financial crisis. Now that things are looking up, because we've got that big injection of federal funding, uh, the sense is that we can at least pay some of that. So the House and Senate have agreed to pay $400 million for this year and defer the payments for the next two years. And I have a sense that they'd like to come back and look at that again later. Maybe they'll actually make those payments, but they'll they'll do it next session. Okay, but definitely trying to whittle that big number down. I know you're going to be a very busy, so eat your Wheaties. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for the support. <laughs> All right, thanks so much. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read his stories, visit silverbeat.org. The Hawaii Arts Alliance honors two local arts educators who have certainly left their mark on the arts scene. HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us. Good morning, Noe. Good morning, Catherine. It's just a joy to be able to talk about someone people don't know as well in the community, Tom Clovey. 
And he literally wrote the book on museum exhibition design. His book's called Exhibitions, Concept Planning and Design, published by the American Association of Museums back in 2012. And it's about how to generate ideas, how to communicate them to visitors. And, I mean, this guy should know. He designed over 200 exhibitions, and he's received uh, national awards and accolades for his work. The whole thing is, Kathleen, he, he started out thinking, oh, I'll just let the art speak for itself. And he had these tiny labels. But gradually, he came around to wanting to provide a way into the work. More and more, I, I dwelt on the idea of interpretation. You know, trying to help people by providing information about the work, a way for them to enter the piece, to gain access, and then they can move on from that. That helps me a lot of times if I go to music, and there's just something there in the label that allows me to look at it in a different way. <laughs> Ever feel like that, Catherine? Yes, yeah, labels do help. <laughs> they do. I mean, but think about this. He also says there are other things a gallery designer can play with. I mean, do you ever think about looking across the gallery to what's there for, you know, a little resonance? I mean, Kobe says that the entire room, an object is enhanced by what it's next to. You have to make sure that objects are actually in a conversation with each other. They're talking together and providing the viewer with more information because of their juxtaposition than just the individual piece itself, the individual itself. And so by putting pieces in a certain sequence next to each other, each one ends up speaking more eloquently, more profoundly, because it's being reinforced. They're talking together, and more is being said. It's kind of interesting because Kobe feels like an exhibition should be wandering through an oriental garden, he says. It should be like discovery, you know, and you turn a corner, you find this, and then you see something further along that just pulls you through the exhibition. I mean, this kind of discovery idea doesn't just happen. You have to really work at it. And this is a total deadline business. It's almost like a wedding business. I mean, there you have to really have things work in clockwork in order to have all the equipment there and all the pieces there. And Clopey's really amazing because he's a veteran of over, of over 200 exhibitions, but he continues to say, do not be satisfied with your very first idea. I mean, you know, he works with students and volunteers all of his 30-year professional career at the University of Hawaii Gallery, and he still believes that brainstorming is good. He has persisted in this brainstorming process. I say, okay, let's just sit down and just say the most, anything we think, we could do this, we could do that, no matter how crazy someone else thinks it is, just say it, it doesn't make any difference. And we would write it down, and sometimes, at first it would sound crazy, and then you'd spring, go back to it and springboard off of it and combine it with something else that someone else said, and people could see then how this grew out of all of this discussion, something gets better, so much more exciting, so much better, because of everyone working together. <laughs> and he gave a really great example, Catherine. You know, the University Art Gallery is in kind of a bamboo courtyard in the middle of the building. Yes. And it's got glass walls, right? So you can see in. And he was doing a show of Isamu Noguchi light sculptures. They're those light orbs of different organic shapes. And he said that he sat with his gallery crew in there, and they're thinking ideas of how to mount this these glowing orbs and and, and he said, you know, I just wish I could levitate the walls. Mm. And they said, this is not right. And what they ended up doing was hanging the partitions from the ceiling so there was space between the wall and the floor. And they hung the light sculptures and didn't use any gallery lighting. It was all lighting from inside the sculptures. And he said people would be coming at night to the art department just to look at the installation. Yeah, I've been to several shows up there. It is a fabulous little space, and it's amazing how they just change it up, and it just looks so different. 
Well, that's the magic of exhibition design. And Tom Clobe is the 2021 Alfred Price Award honoree for his contribution to the arts in Hawaii. He has designed some fabulous exhibitions. And you know what? i got to tell you, his favorite one still is the um, Okage-sama De at the Japanese Cultural Center. Mm. He said that the way the community came together behind that and the way it's displayed just really pleases him. But <laughs> I do want to not forget that Clobie's joined this Saturday by Dwayne Preble, the 2020 Alfred Price Award honoree. I spoke with Dwayne this week. He sounded well. He and his wife, Sarah, are at Pohainani. Now, many in the community know them as the authors yes. of art forms. And, you know, this Price Award ceremony is happening on Saturday. It's 7 p.m. It's a Zoom celebration, so we can all go. Yeah, two wonderful arts educators who, like I said, have inspired so many people with their artistry. Thank you so much, Noe. Okay. Thank you, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. Happy Aloha Friday. We've been talking to HPR's Noe Tanigawa. To find her work, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from St. Andrew's Schools in downtown Honolulu, offering single-gender education for girls K-12 and boys K-6 with an open house Tuesday, April 27th. Registration at standrewsschools.org slash open house. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Highway Inn Hawaiian Food, the Oahu Coral Society, and Janelle Israel & Associates. They believe, as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. You know, I'll never forget the sheer glee I felt when I stepped foot in The Strand, an independent bookseller in New York City. Floors and floors of books, old and new. The Strand is named for a street in London where Charles Dickens once lived. I don't know when I'll get there again, but this pandemic certainly has made many of us focus on what we value. HBR's Noe Tanigawa took us across the islands last month to check in on Hawaii's independent bookstores. Well, tomorrow, the literary world celebrates Indie Bookstore Day. We check in with the shop in Kaimuki, which marks its third anniversary and is thriving. Here's Kristen Namarie. I think we are incredibly lucky to have such a great community and customer base that really understands intuitively the value of buying local, but also that we are deeply invested in our community. And it's been incredibly encouraging through the pandemic to get phone calls and emails and well wishes from long-term customers and people who just discovered us and are just so excited to have an independent bookstore in their own community. Well, I know when I go traveling, you know, there are certain bookstores that I kind of check in on regularly. In Berkeley, there's one called Builders, which is everything you do with construction and architecture. And and so they've just been able to carve out their own little space, and they have this following. So, you know, I imagine that happens here with the little bookstores that we've got. Oh, absolutely. I think that we are lucky to be in such a great neighborhood in Kaimaki, and that really helps us kind of curate the kind of books that we're going to bring in. Our community's taste also deeply influences the kind of books that we bring into the bookstore. From We have an incredibly expansive local book selection and great children's books, but every time that a customer wants to special order a book and it looks like something that we've never seen before and is great value to our bookstore, we have the opportunity to bring that in too. And just as a physical space, having this physical space where people can walk in and look around and acknowledge that stories are valued here and celebrated and recognized as these powerful tools for change. And it's incredible to witness it every day and just to be a part of that. Now, I've been there for some book launches pre-COVID, and, you know, you've got a great space there in the back, you know, for those types of, of events, but I don't know if you've been able to resume any of that. Not yet. 
hopefully in the future it is a fantastic event space. And, you know, that was one of the things that we really missed about being online and being in the pandemic. We have definitely been expanding our services and been able to host virtual events online. Our first one was with Kavai Strong-Washburn, who wrote the very much celebrated Sharks and Time Saviors. Yes. And we just continued on with that. And hopefully we're building connections and community in this virtual space where people can still come together and share ideas and talk about stories. Those community events are such a valuable part of being a bookstore, and we so deeply cherish that and want to continue it. So hopefully in the future, in-person events, but definitely continuing virtual events for sure. How have you, you know, managed to work the online retail purchases? You know, it's funny. It's hard to imagine one year ago we didn't even have an online shop. We were brick and mortar, and then everything changed, and we had to pivot so quickly. And for us as a bookstore, learning the nuts and bolts of what it's like to do ordering and shipping has been interesting. But being able to offer especially a lot of local books that tell such a strong story about the history and culture of Hawaii to a national audience and sometimes the international audience has been really rewarding and exciting. And it's been a bit of a learning curve for us, absolutely. But we're excited that that's now just a part of our expanded services. And then you're connected with Best Press. Yes, absolutely. Which marked its big anniversary last year. Yes, Best Press has been such a deeply rooted educational press in our community, over 41 years of publishing, and it continues to grow. I think everyone knows Best Press as an educational publishing company, but we do trade titles, gift books, activity books, and we're really building our online educational platform at bestpresseducation.com, which has been really exciting to hear feedback from teachers and educators and administrators in our community about what their needs are and what their needs continue to be and how we can continually meet that together. I mentioned you do a lot of uh, you know immersion stuff. They need the curriculum. Absolutely. We have, I think, the really great opportunity to be able to listen to, as you're saying, the needs of our community and respond especially both in our online platform, but also, I mean, just in, for example, our island readers, who, which are multilingual learning to read series, and they're in Olala, Hawaii, but they're also in Marshallese and Shokis, and that's a, an area we are continually to build because it is such a deep, deep need in our community, and we're excited to be a part of that. I know I love to find unique children's books, you know, that I can send to my nieces, you know, on the mainland. It's something that they don't have access to in their communities. And, and it's a delight to be able to, to find them great illustrations. I love illustrations in children's books. Me too. I think we're living in a golden age of picture books. And the, one of the great joys of being at the shop is to be able to watch kids walk in an uninitiated walk up to a shelf of books and pick one up and just start flipping pages. There is such an incredible personal connection that comes with picking up a book, but also one, like you said, that has incredibly vibrant illustrations. We love curating and discovering so many different kinds of books out there, and it's always a surprise to me to see how many different ways that people are telling stories and incredible styles of illustrations. And those are my favorite books to pick up. I think picture books are for people of all ages. They're for adults, too. I, I love books with illustrations. And I think that's honestly one of the great joys of having an independent bookstore. And to be a publisher is to be also to be able to contributing to that and, and knowing that you are putting high-quality, interesting stories into the world. Now, I still cherish my child craft books, you know, because they <laughs> do have wonderful illustration, the nursery rhymes, and, and it's just so comforting to be able to just pull it, pull it off the shelf and, and flip through the pages again. But, you know, we have a younger audience that maybe is into, you know, hearing stories, right? As a child, you love to be read stories. So, what if, uh, you know, how does Best Press look at the audio books? And it's a little different than, than holding a book in your hand. Absolutely. I think we are acknowledging that there are so many ways that people are receiving stories and that people can access stories. To listen to a story, I think it doesn't take away from, from the physical act of reading a book. It's another way to read it. Um, and digital, which has become a really big conversation, it's another way to interact with a story. So I think the exciting way to look at how we are publishing and how we are telling stories is to make it a 
not a this or conversation, but an and conversation. There's so many ways that we can interact with stories and increase increase access to be able to just to receive these all these different incredible kinds of stories. And it's exciting just for me, even as a as a reader, I I love audiobooks and I oftentimes listen to the audio first and then I'll buy the book. Um, yes. or my kids will listen to a story being read to them as they're following along, as they're pre reading, um, as they're still learning how to read and that's that's an exciting part of the journey for them. Now I used to love uh, listening to story hour, you know, Saturday mornings on the radio. And mm-hmm. I don't know if, you know, when the time allows if if you'll be doing, you know, story time at all at the bookstore for little ones. Oh, absolutely. I think I miss that too. I mean, I I love being read to. We have, during the pandemic, we've been um, doing some just shop read-alouds, which we posted on social media. And we had some of our authors, local authors, reading stories to kids, which we got great feedback about. And I think that is something that we would absolutely are looking forward to bringing back and offering to our kids. We, I, I really miss being able to especially have events that bring families in. It's a, just a great opportunity when kids get to see their parents reading and for parents to have that experience with their children. But absolutely, story time is um, something that we're definitely looking forward to. That was Kristen Nomber-Reed of The Shop, Books and Curiosities in Kaimuki. If you drop by tomorrow on Saturday on Indie Book Day, and if you spend over $60, you'll get a The Shop tote. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. How can the Rufus Hummingbird fly 3,500 miles? It takes a bit of larceny. They find the the wells drilled in trees by sapsuckers and... uh, when the sapsucker's not looking, they dive in and, and have a little sip of the of the tree sap. On the next Science Friday, an ode to the tenacious hummingbird, plus the White House Climate Summit. Join me on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Need something to make you smile? Well, you're in luck. It's National Humor Month. Take a listen to this. They even went shut down the H Street Freeway. Remember that? (laughs) For COVID testing. That's right. local stand-up comic Tumua Tuine during one of his recent sets. The young comedian star has been rising steadily since he first started doing stand-up four years ago. He recently sold out 18 shows at the Blue Note Hawaii between December 2020 and January 2021. The conversation's Russell Subiono talked with Tuine about being funny, local style. What's the first joke you remember telling? 
the first joke I remember telling um, is actually a, a horrible joke. <laughs> is that one of these uh, these open mics? Uh, it was actually at um, King's Pizza. This is my first time ever doing comedy. Uh, that's on Kapahulu. It's uh-huh. just like the size of my bathroom. The thing is tiny. You only fit like maybe five people inside. But yeah, I was super nervous, you know, sweating. Um, to make doo-doo a couple times <laughs> before because, you know, you get nervous when that happens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, the first joke I said was, I think I said, um, how's it going, everybody? Uh, my name is Tumor. Um I'm an experienced comedian. The first thing I said. <laughs> and then um, I, I, I said, the show before this, uh, I got a standing ovation in the crowd, but then I realized that there was no seats in, in the crowd. <laughs> Something stupid like that. Yeah. And I said, yeah, the only people that was watching was, was my mom and the janitor. <laughs> well, I don't even think it's funny. Now. I don't even know why I said that, but that's the very first joke I, I told and didn't get any, any laughs. Nothing. Crickets. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you've made incredible progress and leaps and bounds from that from that first night i read recently that you sold out 18 shows at the blue note how would you describe your style of comedy oh thank you um i would say it's uh, very relatable um i like to uh, have a lot of energy on stage and main thing is i like to to talk about past experience that i had in, in a local locals perspective and I just try to make everyone laugh and, and feel um what I experienced and I'm starting to realize that a lot of people had the same childhood as me growing up with a you know super local family my my dad he's a Samoan guy you know he's kind of kind of strict just like every every local parent you know and I feel like I just talk about those things and it's, it's super relatable and, it, and everybody enjoys it is there fun. is there anybody that you try to emulate is there anybody that has influenced you from local comedians or uh, comedians out from outside Hawaii? Just like the the, the greats from from Hawaii, you know, um, Andy Bumatai is one of them. Um, Augie T as well, you know, they both made a huge impact in Hawaii with their comedy, and they even um, branched out to the mainland or so uh, for a brief amount of time. From other comedians besides Hawaii, I would say uh, Joe Coy is definitely a big influence. Um, yeah. I go to all his shows every time he comes to Hawaii. Uh, I try to use his same um, energy that he brings on stage, you know, that high tempo and yeah. and always sweating and, and moving around the whole stage from left to right. You know, I try to I try to copy that. And uh, I'm also a big fan of Gabriel Iglesias. Oh, yeah, um, Fluffy. Just because uh, he he's clean. He does clean comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I do clean comedy as well. And then he shows that you don't have to swear or, or talk about, you know, touchy topics. In order to be funny, you can just be yourself and have a show for the whole family. Also, right Sebastian Maniscalco, which is a an Italian comedian. I don't know if you heard about him. Yeah, but he, he's he's funny. He's one of my favorites too. So definitely those three those three guys right now. I imagine it takes a lot more skill to be a clean comedian. What prompted you to take that route? Is it is it just your your upbringing or the kind of audiences that you want, or do you accept the challenge that it that it takes to be funny without having to stoop to a low level. Well, I mean, if if you if you know me personally, I personally um you know don't don't swear or I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. a dirty type of guy. So that that was easy for me to start off right off the bat. And um and when because I started doing comedy with Augie for maybe like my first couple months of doing comedy, I did I opened for him for a few shows, and then he told me like you know if you if you want to make it big in Hawaii, you gotta you got to stay clean, you know, because mm-hmm. that's just how Hawaii is with, with the keiki and, and, and everyone from the family usually comes out, you know. So just that being told to me early on in my career and just from my upbringing of just naturally being, you know, a, a clean person, it was uh, it, it was pretty easy to, to write clean jokes because that's how I normally go through my day-to-day life. You know, we've heard origin stories from a lot of comedians where – they were either the class clown in elementary school or they used comedy as a way to make friends or fend off bullies. Do you have a comedy origin story like that? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think everybody was funny growing up, you know? Everyone always says, oh, I was a class clown. So, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I think I was a funny person, you know, throughout my childhood. Um, another thing that people don't know is that uh, I used to be a magician, so I did magic through, since 
I was like five years old and, and I actually did shows and all that. I had my own business card and everything. So, I mean, I don't know. I was just really into that. So I guess that kind of helped my stage presence and not being afraid to perform in front of an audience. But yeah, I, I, I think I was always funny and it's always good to, you know, make people laugh to, to connect everybody. Yeah, I can tell definitely that you've had years of experience on the stage. And when I looked at your, your website, it says that you found your passion for stand-up comedy through a comedy class. Where, where did yeah, you attend true. that class? And what is it yeah. specifically about stand-up that appeals to you? So I took a stand-up comedy class at UH. So um, I graduated high school in 2014, and then I, I ended up um, going to the University of Hawaii to play football and, and just, you know, pick up education up there. And I majored in communications and minored in theater. So in theater, um, you know, the theater department, they have a bunch of classes. And one of the classes was uh, stand-up comedy. Um, they only had it for two semesters, I think. So I saw that in the class description, and I was like, "Oh, this is this is cool. I wonder wonder what they're gonna do for that." So I just took the class. You know, me and my me and my teammate, we we took the class together, and we just did it for an easy A, honestly, and just something to do for fun. But um, I ended up loving it, you know. And in that class, they actually um, they don't teach you how to be funny because you kind of personally gotta have that from yourself, but they give you like formulas of jokes and and you study like the great comics like Richard Pryor, you know Eddie Murphy and all that. So we, we would like watch comedy specials and find out like you know what formula did they use or or how did they they control the audience and stuff like that. It's really interesting, you know. And and at the end of the semester, our final presentation was to do ten minutes of comedy in front of a live audience, and um, it was at Anna O'Brien, which is in an Irish pub bar in, in downtown across Longs on University. Mm-hmm. We had to do a performance there for, t- for 10 minutes, and then I remember, like, the whole football team came. That place was packed, and I did great, and I did awesome. And then from there, Jose Dynamite, which is uh, he's another um, comedy promoter here in Hawaii, saw me there, and he just kept inviting me back and back to do more comedy, and I haven't stopped since. And prior prior to taking that class, it had never been an aspiration of yours or it never crossed your mind that, that stand-up might be a thing you could do? Yeah, never. I was, I was all into football, you know. Yeah. And I, I mean, I always wanted to be an actor. So that's why I, I took up theater and all that. And um, I was realizing that so many people want to be actors, you know, and too, too big to just try to pursue that. But then I, I noticed that the big-time actors today, like, you know, Adam Sandler, Will Ferrell, even Tom Hanks, they, they all started off doing stand-up comedy. So then I was thinking, you know, maybe that's the fastest way to become like a big-time actor is through, through stand-up comedy. And then that, that was just in the back of my head. And then, boom, I saw the class description about, you know, stand-up comedy. And then I took it. And then I was like, oh, I actually kind of like this, you know. And I imagine as you went through those courses, you probably got a lot of opportunity to kind of hone your writing and, and really get good at at the oh, yeah. written part of it and so what's what's your process for writing jokes for your set my process is uh well it starts off as an idea you know and then i would usually jot it down on my phone or a piece of paper that i so i don't forget it like it could be anything like you know if i'm walking in walmart and i see this local guy complaining about about a you know a sales price or something and i think that's funny so i'll just have that idea in my phone and then I would get home, you know, maybe write it down a little bit more, try to figure out, you know, what, what I can twist around to make it funnier. And then I would um, try it out on one of these small shows in Hawaii. Um, right now there's a bunch of small comedy feature shows that are happening almost like every day of the week. A lot of people don't know about it, but it's all throughout um, downtown. There's some at Hawaiian Bryan's. Even at Blue Note, they have, they have a weekly comedy show every every Wednesday. So I would usually just pop in and then, you know, test out the material. And then I, I record every set too. So I, I, I audio record it and sometimes video record it. And I would listen how I do and what, what I can change. And then it's all about, it's almost like songwriting, I guess, but you just got to find out like what makes people laugh, like what words to say 
and all that. But now that I'm, I've been in about four years, I'm starting to realize, like, when people say they write jokes on stage, I don't know if you heard about that, mm-hmm. um, it's starting to make sense. So I would just go up with the idea and just, like, riff off of that and see what, what hits, you know? That sounds like next level that an experienced a comedian, stand-up comedian, would, would be able to do, and it sounds like you're you're getting pretty good at that. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to, if you've ever been to one of my shows, I like, I like to interact with the crowd a lot, too. So I would I love to have conversations with, with, with a couple or, or any, anyone that's, you know, in, in one of my shows and something just sparks funny and I just roll with that. And, and the crowd loves that because they know it's spontaneous and it's happening right in the moment. And it's almost like it's almost like magic, too, a little bit. So I think that it kind of ties in together. A lot of people don't know this, but magic is kind of like stand-up comedy. You know, you got to have, like, light of hand and you got to misdirect have some misdirection with the audience so they don't catch the punchline you know what i mean mm-hmm. and um just stuff like that yeah it, it it it's a craft that you gotta just the more years you do it the the, um, the the more you'll get it i definitely plan on coming to a show at some point in the future but every time i go to buy tickets you're sold out so <laughs> so at some point i, I will i will yeah, just let me know okay <laughs> That was local stand-up comic uh, Tumua Twine talking with R. Russell Subiono. Twine will be performing next at two sold-out Mother's Day shows at Bayview Bar and Bistro in Kaneohe. To hear the entire interview, uh, check out the link on our website. And you know, we're all pow for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we explore equity in education, and we learn about Hawaii's Civil War history. Got a story to share? Call us. 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Our program produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Jason Ubai. The Beckard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.